All right, guys, welcome in to today's episode of the Locked On SEC Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm your host, Blake Lovell, and uh, on today's episode of the podcast, a lot to discuss uh, when it comes to a wild, wild evening in SEC basketball. Plus, uh, we look at SEC football-related stuff as uh, Mel Kuyper Jr. of ESPN has released his newest uh, NFL mock draft, and as you would expect, it includes a lot of SEC players, but we will get to that a little bit later. We start with basketball, and uh, it was not an ideal uh, slate for teams from the state of Alabama. And we start uh, with the first one, which was Georgia getting a 65-55 win over Auburn in Athens. And uh, this was another game for Auburn without Isaac Okoro. And just to make it perfectly clear, Georgia made plays down the stretch of this game to win. I don't think we should just solely focus on the fact that, you know, uh, Auburn lost this game because they didn't have Isaac Okoro. Georgia won the game. I mean, they made the plays they had to make down the stretch to win the game. And, and Auburn didn't. I mean, Auburn had opportunities. It was one of those things where, you know, you saw Georgia getting some of the loose balls. You saw Auburn, you know, not being able to handle certain balls uh, that would go out of bounds or they would lose it off their foot. Uh, it just seemed like there were there were several of those plays down the stretch when Auburn was trying to make its rally where you just had some of those frustrating type of moments, uh, which, you know, we haven't really necessarily seen all the time from this team throughout the season. And and that, I think, goes back to the Isaac Okoro factor where he's someone we came into the year talking about how much different he was going to make things on defense because, you know, Bruce Pearl, the quote, which we've revisited many times about, you know, one of the best defenders he's ever coached, someone that can guard one through five and you can plug him into a spot and you know, you know, he's someone that's going to be able to stop what the other team is doing. Uh, but yet he's transformed himself into a good offensive player. And we discussed that, you know, a couple episodes ago uh, when we were talking about the NBA mock draft that now has him at number three as where ESPN has him. Um, so it just shows you he's developed. He's not just a defensive guy anymore. He's an offensive player that helps on that side too. And, and not having him on the court you know, on both sides, it's just, it's been huge. And Auburn's just not the same team without him. They're not getting enough production without him on the court. And, you know, it's going to, I think, continue to be a theme here with Auburn's three-point shooting. We've said it all year long that this team just cannot shoot it as well as that team did a year ago that made the Final Four. Uh, They go 4 of 26 in this game from three-point range, and that's something we're going to continue to talk about because it is something where, you know, they're not hitting outside shots. If you're only, you know, making four of your 26 attempts for three-point range, it puts you in quite a bind. And and that's where I think you look at a team like this. Are they going to consistently – be able to find enough ways to score in games away from home because that's the theme too is you know you look at all four of their losses this year they're all by double digits on the road and so uh, this team playing better away from home is a big priority right now because that's what's going to give them an opportunity to go deep in March because if they can't fix some of these these problems they've had playing away from Auburn Arena uh, it's going to be a situation where if they get the wrong matchup you know, they could be ousted very early in the NCAA tournament. Uh, so uh, I think Auburn's in a situation now where certainly getting Isaac Okoro back is going to give them a big boost. But because he changes the game so much, they just haven't been able to to take that step forward without him and really adjust the way that they they needed to adjust to win some of these games. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because Auburn's going to be graded very differently when it comes to, okay, well, how do they play without Isaac Okoro? 
how do they play with him on the court? Uh, and I think once he gets back, you'll be able to see that difference a lot better uh, than maybe we have, you know, without him on the court. But I think it's been pretty glaring anyways uh, without him on the court that he is just someone uh, that makes them, you know, go on both sides of the court. And, and, you know, not having him on the floor, it's just such a big deal. But again, can't take anything away from Georgia here. This was a team that had to have a win. I mean, they desperately needed a win uh, after you know losing as many games as they have in SEC play to be t- two and ten to start league play. Um, this is one that, that maybe gives Georgia a little bit of confidence with Anthony Edwards playing well uh, to be able to move forward and you know win some games like this the rest of the way, potentially be a spoiler type of team in the SEC tournament. Uh, but no doubt that uh, this game probably looks a little bit different if Isaac Okoro is on the floor. Uh, but either way, Georgia made enough plays to get the win. Uh, they deserve the credit for that. And uh, it's one where, where Auburn kind of goes back to the drawing board here uh, as they, they go forward, you know, not knowing exactly when Okoro is going to be back but when he gets back on the floor uh, it will probably be quite a boost uh, for an Auburn team uh, that needs it right now and then there was the game in Tuscaloosa Texas A&M gets a 74 to 68 victory over Alabama and it was a game that Alabama simply could not afford to lose for its NCAA tournament perspective and uh, they did they lost the game and I think it's one that you know we said in the preview Historically, this is a game that Alabama has has found ways to lose, and I didn't know, I didn't, you know, I didn't really think that was going to be the case here because of how well this team had been playing. Uh, but once again, you know, Alabama finds itself in a spot where it had every chance to to get a win like this. It felt like a good setup to keep their momentum going, and then they lose a game at home where you know they allow a team like Texas A and M, who just made a furious rally down the stretch. Uh, I think they had a 12-0 run at one point late in the game. Uh, and it just it completely flips your entire outlook on the rest of the season uh, because you just you can't afford to have a loss like that to a Texas A&M team that, by the way, is now 7-6 and six in league play. And that's why I think, and I said it on Twitter, that Buzz Williams is probably the SEC coach of the year at this point uh, because if you watch that team play in November and you watch the way they're playing now, it is a completely different team. Uh, because they, I mean, realistically, they look like the least impressive team in the SEC in non-conference play. Now, remember, that was before Vanderbilt, you know, had Aaron Neesmith out for the season with an injury. I mean, Vanderbilt actually looked pretty good uh, at times throughout the non-conference portion, but Texas A&M, they struggled a lot, and they looked like the team that was going to be sitting right there in that number 14 spot. So they've come a long, long way, and that's why I think you put Buzz Williams probably right there at the top right now in terms of the SEC Coach of the Year race. Uh, but back to Alabama, you know, this is again, and this is where, you know, you sense that frustration with fans. And, and I was talking to Jordan Harper, who, uh, you know, hosted the new podcast, the Double Dribble podcast uh, for the Crimson Crossover uh, website. Those guys do a great job. And as I continue to say, I just love the fact that there are so many uh, independent sort of SEC basketball websites, podcasts, and all that. It's great for the league. It's great to have more coverage. Uh, so I enjoy that. But, you know, talking with him, and, and as he said, you know, it's just something where, it's one of these things that, yes, it's sort of just inexcusable to have these losses like this, you know, throughout the years because we have seen it so much w- with this Alabama team. And, you know, I think a lot of people are quick to rush to, to blame, you know, Nate Oates and all this other stuff and feel like that, that this is sort of the same old Alabama in these situations. 
I just I don't think I'm ready to go there just yet. I get it for Alabama fans who have been in the spot so many times and been disappointed uh, by results in games like this. I mean, just look back last year in the exact same scenario, pretty much uh, where this this same sort of thing happened. Um, I, you have to sort of look at each year differently, but but I get that the trend has continued. And, and that's just something that has to be frustrating. And, you know, with Alabama's – the thing is with Alabama, you know, the positive is that they this is a team with their, their playing style that can change a game so quickly due to their three-point shooting. You know, they had such a fast – I think it was a 12-0 run early in the game, I want to say. It may have been like 24-18, Texas A&M led. Alabama, I think, hit four straight threes or something like that. Uh, and just it was furious rallies. Like, that's just what they're able to do because of how well they can shoot at times. But then again, you look on the flip side of that where, you know, if they're not hitting those outside shots and they're not getting to the free throw line enough, I know people pointed out the discrepancy in free throws. I think Texas A&M shot 27, Alabama shot nine, but – Sometimes that's sort of a product, too, of shooting a lot of threes and not necessarily putting yourself in a situation where you get to the line more than nine times. And so maybe in a game like this, that's where you want to to look back and say, well, you know, maybe we should have tried to adjust a little bit better, especially late in the game, uh, to try to get to the free throw line more, uh, to have more opportunities to, to maybe try to win the game. Uh, but but anyway, you slice it. It's it's a bad loss for Alabama. Uh, it's one that they could not afford as a team that was right there in the first four out. And and now you know it's a situation where if you look at the rest of their schedule. Where do the quality win opportunities come from? Because that's what they need at this point to make up for a loss like this. Uh, And you look at it, their best win left in the regular season is going to be at Mississippi State uh, next Tuesday. Aside from that, they've got Ole Miss, South Carolina, Vanderbilt, and Missouri. None of those wins, you know, despite how well Missouri, South Carolina, Ole Miss, even Vanderbilt is playing right now, None of those wins are really pushing your resume forward in a huge way, and that's why this was such a bad loss for Alabama, is that not only could they just not afford a loss like this, is that they just don't have the quality win opportunities available to them to make up for a loss like this. And so is you when you lose a game like this, you put yourself in a spot where now it's a matter of what everyone else does versus what you're able to do in terms of controlling your own destiny to get in. Uh, because we don't really know what the rest of the bubble is going to look like, and that's where the problem lies when it comes to putting yourself in this spot. Uh, and that's, again, is where the frustration lies with Alabama fans. And it makes sense uh, because this is a game that you looked at it on paper, you feel like you shouldn't have lost. And by the way, yes, we're finally getting to this part of it uh, after we did all that. But Texas A&M, who came in, as one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the country. They were 351st nationally in three-point uh, percentage. I think when you look at three-point maids, they were pretty low, too. I want to say in the 330s. Um, and then they go 11 of 24 in this game from three. So that just sort of that just sort of summed it up. I think for Alabama, it's one of those things that everything just went against them in terms of, you know, you, you can't really prepare for a Texas A&M team that does not get a lot of their points uh, from the three-point line to somehow come in and hit 11. Uh, it's just it's just one of those things. And that's where I think, you know, Alabama fans are probably looking at it and shaking their heads. You just don't know how something like that happens. And, and it was one of those where, I don't know, it's just you can't really explain it. Uh, I'm not sure how you explain it, but uh, it's a game Alabama couldn't afford to lose, and they did. And now uh, that puts them uh, off the bubble here at this point. But 
Coming up next, uh, we jump into uh, what was a big uh, bubble type of game as well. In Starkville between Mississippi State and South Carolina, one team took a big step forward uh, while the other uh, probably, you know, back out of the picture uh, after moving into it uh, somewhat uh, in Joe Lenardi's uh, latest uh, bracketology. But uh, we'll jump into that next here on the Locked On SEC Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. And as mentioned, it was an important bubble game uh, in Starkville as Mississippi State gets the 79-76 victory against South Carolina. It really sort of played out just kind of like we thought it would. I think of the predictions, I had a three-point win. I think it was 77-74, so uh, pretty close here. And, and I did think this game really played out just as we expected it to because South Carolina nearly had a chance to win the game at the end. And and you could tell Ben Hallen was frustrated exactly with, with maybe the, the last sequence there in terms of uh, South Carolina having a chance to even make it that close. Uh, but uh, this was still a game where, look, we said free throw-wise, knowing you know from a foul standpoint what you get sometimes with this South Carolina team in terms of where they're at nationally in fouls. Uh, Mississippi State got to the line 36 times in this game, and they hit 28 of their free throws, which was very, very important, um, You know, knowing that they turned it over 22 times, which that's not going to make Ben Howland happy. Uh, but they did get to the free throw line, and they did what they had to do. They took advantage of some of the weaknesses and really give South Carolina credit because Mississippi State only had six offensive rebounds in this game and only had four second-chance points. And remember, this is a team that came into the game uh, third nationally in offensive rebounding percentage. So uh, to be able to hold them to that, I mean, that's that's a job well done for South Carolina. And Mike Coatsar uh, with 24 points, he was 11 of 17 from the floor. He had seven rebounds, uh, had four assists, and 37 minutes of play. So a really good night uh, for Coatsar on the other side. You just got that balance from Mississippi State, and we talked about sort of the scoring balance with Kentucky on the previous episode of the podcast and how much easier that makes the game. Well, you got that here because, you know, you had Nick Weatherspoon with 18. You had Stewart uh, with 16. Abdullah Du had 14. Reggie Perry had 10. Uh, you know, you had Robert Woodard with 9. You had Tyson Carter with 9. That type of balance can take Mississippi State a long way uh, because they are they are a team that, that has that flexibility and they have the versatility in terms of uh, the different lineups they can use and you know having the length that they have and the size. That's what makes this Mississippi State team very intriguing moving forward uh, because you throw out that loss that they had at Ole Miss, uh, which as we've seen sometimes in the SEC this year, We've just seen some of those games from teams where it just completely goes in the opposite direction uh, and you don't expect it to. That may have just been one of those games for Mississippi State. Otherwise, you look at how they played really, you know, since they had that one-point loss at LSU, uh, I guess you go all the way back to mid-January at that point. Um, they played pretty well, and yes, they've lost some games in there, but they've got some good wins. They've beaten Arkansas twice. You know, they've beaten Florida. They they beat Tennessee by 13 at home. Now they get a good win at home against South Carolina, and really the schedule the rest of the way. Their last five games, they're at Texas A&M, uh, they're at home against Alabama, they're at Missouri, at South Carolina, at home against Ole Miss. 
on paper, that schedule looks like it's a favorable one for Mississippi State. But as we're seeing, look up and down the line there at the teams that are playing really well. Uh, it's not going to be easy, and they could just as well, you know, lose all those games as they could win all those games. So uh, that's what makes the SEC sort of fun this year. But um, you know, I just I think a, a team like Mississippi State is one to really look at here. But, uh, they're one that you know you look at them going to the SEC tournament. If we saw Mississippi State playing in the SEC tournament championship, it shouldn't be all that surprising because from a talent standpoint, they're one of the most talented teams in the SEC, and they have one of the most talented players in Reggie Perry. But you get that balance, and you get these other guys on the same night that are able to come out you know, and lead the way in scoring like this, where, where Perry does have a double-double, but it, you know, he only has 10 points. And so uh, he did have seven turnovers too, which I know is not ideal and not what he wanted. Uh, but uh, this is a good win for Mississippi State. And I don't really look at this game and take anything away from it and say, well, you know, South Carolina goes on the road and loses this game. I'm not sure we can trust South Carolina. I don't think that at all. I don't take that away from it uh, here just because they lost this game. Uh, it was one that they needed to win in terms of picking up a quality win opportunity on their own resume because they did, uh, as I mentioned you know, earlier, they did temporarily move into Joe Lenardi's picture in terms of uh, I think they were the, the eighth team out uh, before the game started. So they were on that next four out line. Uh, now they'll move back a bit, but uh, you know, still some opportunities available for South Carolina. If you look at their remaining schedule, they still have home games against LSU and Mississippi State. So those are two quality win opportunities. Uh, You know, getting the rematch there, they still have to go to Alabama. You know, beating Georgia and Vanderbilt won't do much for their resume or give them that boost they need, uh, as we mentioned, you know, with Alabama earlier uh, in terms of trying to find those quality win opportunities. But they have more quality win opportunities because they get the rematch in Mississippi State, uh, they get Alabama and Tuscaloosa, and they get the home game uh, against LSU on Saturday. So uh, big, big stretch coming up for South Carolina. If they can beat LSU, that's a big step forward for the Gamecocks. And really, I don't think they look at this game and there's not really, you know, you don't look at it and I think just be completely negative taken away from it if you're a South Carolina fan. It's one you felt like, you know, you had an opportunity to win, but at the same time, uh, I still feel pretty good about where both of these teams are at. And these are the two teams that you look at and say, okay, if there are teams that can make a run in the SEC tournament based on what the draw is, you have to put them in that mix. And we've, we're starting to add lots of teams to that. You know, go back to what Texas A&M has done, um, Missouri and Ole Miss, which we talked about on the previous episode of the podcast. There's just lots of teams you can throw in that category now. So uh, it's something where we'll see. We'll see what happens with both of these teams, but you have to feel pretty good uh, about where both of them are. But definitely if you're a Mississippi State fan, uh, getting a win like this, uh, it's it's a nice step forward on the bubble, knowing that Alabama's kind of moved behind you now, uh, which it doesn't really matter. You know, comparing conference teams, it's all about the overall resume anyways. Uh, but but now Mississippi State moves in at that, that team that could be the potential fifth team uh, that gets in from the SEC. And, and, you know, maybe they wind up being the fourth team in that, that order uh, based on how things play out uh, with some of the other teams uh, in the mix. But big win for Mississippi State. And, uh, again, looking at their schedule, there are some opportunities here down the stretch, but so is the case for South Carolina uh, as they have some opportunities to to at least get back into the conversation, uh, and we'll see where both of these teams stand uh, heading into the SEC tournament in Nashville. But uh, as mentioned earlier, uh, we move from basketball to uh, football, as uh, there are lots of SEC football players uh, expected to be taken in the 2020 NFL Draft, and uh, Mel Kiper Jr., the guru uh, of NFL uh, 
mock drafts and the NFL draft in general. Uh, he has released uh, his latest mock, and there are lots of SEC players on the list, uh, including in a very intriguing top 15. And we're going to look at those players uh, coming up right here on the Lockdown SEC Podcast, part of the Lockdown Podcast Network. And we finish up uh, with uh, what we mentioned earlier, looking at the uh, newest NFL mock draft from Mel Kuyper Jr. of ESPN. Uh, I know most people, again, just to sort of revisit this, uh, I know most people think that I'm someone that's maybe just covered the SEC, but I've actually covered the NFL for years as a freelancer, uh, both as, you know, on the local level, on the national level, and, you know, as a writer, as an editor. So uh, it's something that I've really been, you know, tapped into the NFL for a while now. And so I always love the NFL draft. I think it's so fascinating because, uh, you know, it's free agency leading into the draft can always be very fascinating. And uh, it's just a fun time to, to see how players fit into new teams, you know, who goes where, and, and seeing these guys get their opportunity uh, to make a splash at the professional level. Always exciting. But uh, as we look at this mock draft here from Mel Kuyper, it's, it is an ESPN Plus article. Uh, as I mentioned sort of the, the last time we did this in the news segment several days ago, uh, I will include this article uh, in the show notes. I actually think I forgot to do that uh, on the last ones. But it is ESPN Plus, so you'll have to have a subscription to see the entire thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of SEC players in here, but we're only going to run through the top 15 because uh, there are in total uh, 17 SEC players uh, in the first round in Mel Kuyper's uh, draft. Over half of the first round is filled with SEC players. That's probably not a huge surprise anymore uh, based on, you know, how many talented players come out of the SEC at this point. But we will focus in on the top 15. And uh, we start with number one on his board. Uh, speaking of n- no shocker here, uh, Joe Burrow uh, to the Bengals. Um, you know, he is the obvious choice for the Bengals. I know there's been so many rumors out there and there's been so much discussion uh, about, oh, well, well, Joe Burrow, he said this or he's not committed to that and, and maybe he should sit out a year or he should pull an Eli Manning uh, and force his hand uh, you know, and make, make them trade the pick, which the Bengals have said that they have no intentions of trading this pick. Uh, so any way you slice it, uh, if the Bengals are sitting there at number one, they're going to take Joe Burrow. And I think, you know, whether you agree with that or not, that's another discussion. Uh, but uh, he is the person that's been at the top of the board for a while now. And uh, as Mel Kuyper notes, uh, there's no expectation that that's going to change uh, in terms of him going to Cincinnati. Uh, number three is Tua Tagovailoa. Uh, you know, right now... <laughs> He would be going to the Lions in this scenario at number three uh, because the Lions are, at this point, uh, the Vegas betting favorites alongside the Dolphins. They are currently co-favorites to land Tua, um, and and that's where the rumor mill has been going strong as well. You know, the rumors are that the Lions have were trying to trade Matthew Stafford or are trying to trade Matthew Stafford. Uh, you know, their front offices came out and denied that, which, you know, you're going to get that no matter what. Um, and obviously, this is sort of where it feels like the draft starts for a lot of people. And you've seen that mentioned a lot uh, from NFL draft analysts and all that, because this is the most ideal spot in terms of if someone wants to trade up uh, to to make a deal here, whether that's to take Tua, whether that's to take, you know, Justin Herbert from Oregon, uh, no matter what, this is sort of that trade spot. And, you know, because Joe Burrow's going to the Bengals in that scenario unless something just completely uh, unexpected happens with that whole deal and you know we get just a, a wacky scenario which I just 
again, you read everything, you just don't envision that happening. Uh, and Chase Young from Ohio State's probably going to the Redskins at number two. So this is sort of where things start in terms of that intrigue because this is the pick that could change the entire first round of the draft uh, because, you know, you look at the way this thing could play out. You could have different teams trading up, you know, would the Dolphins trade up to try to get to a, uh, you know, would a team like the Chargers trade up to get him? And, and else, there's just so many different options here uh, for the Lions, and I think that puts the Lions in a good spot because, you know, are, would they take him still? Even with Matthew Stafford on the roster, are they still going to take Tua? Uh, because I know a lot of people probably look at it, and I've seen some of the reaction on Twitter uh, of people that don't necessarily want to see Tua go play for the Lions. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it is. It's very interesting, and if that's the way it plays out, uh, it will be interesting to see how that whole quarterback situation works there. Again, not knowing whether they're going to try to trade Stafford, uh, you know, what the situation would be there in that scenario, or who the team is that trades up here to either get Tua or take Justin Herbert, who, by the way, Kuyper thinks uh, has the highest upside of any quarterback in the draft, even though he has him going uh, a few spots back. And that's kind of what he mentions in the article, is that you know there, there's no way to properly adjust your, your mock draft based on trades because you don't know who the tra- teams are that are going to trade. So uh, that's why he has Tua going to the Lions at number three. Speaking of Alabama, at number six, uh, Jedrick Wills, uh, the offensive tackle uh, to the Chargers is what uh, he has at number six. I think that's a pretty interesting one because, you know, Phillip Rivers is hitting free agency. He's not going to be back with the Chargers. Uh, You're going to have a new quarterback under center there. You know, Melvin Gordon, another important part of that offense. Uh, He's a free agent. Hunter Henry, the same way, the tight end, of course, the former Arkansas star. Uh, He is also a free agent. So that offense could look a whole lot different. Uh, next season and and Anthony Lynn who the Chargers head coach has talked about or at least that's been the rumor is that he wants you know wants a more mobile type of quarterback in play and so if you're able to get someone like this who you feel like you can rely on you can start him you know at either tackle spot right away uh, that would make sense for the Chargers although like we mentioned a a minute ago uh, they could be a team that if they don't decide to go you know the free agency route or stick with someone like Tyrod Taylor as their starting quarterback, um, you know, maybe they decide to trade up to make a move there to get to number three. Uh, so that that adds another layer to it, uh, even if they, you know, don't don't go with this pick here. If they were to trade up, uh, maybe go, go with the quarterback spot there, whether that's two or whether that's Herbert, uh, either one, uh, it would be fascinating to see because the Chargers have been one of those teams uh, we know need a quarterback. Uh, you know, would they get Tom Brady? They've been mentioning the rumor and all that. But then again, so have a lot of other teams at this point. So uh, not sure. But Jedrick Wills, uh, someone currently uh, projected to the Chargers uh, from Mel Kuyper at number seven. Right after him, another SEC guy, uh, Derek Brown from Auburn, of course, uh, has him projected at number seven to the Panthers. I think you look at it, you know, this is another situation where you've got a new regime in place. Matt Rule, the former Baylor coach, is there now. Um, you know, the Panthers at times last year, they just were not great on defense at times, and that sort of held them back, and so did, I think, you know, their their offense, even without, you know, Christian McCaffrey was in his usual self, but 
Overall, their offense was a little more inconsistent than they wanted it to be. Uh, but their defense, they have to be able to make some moves here on defense because, uh, you know, a lot of these guys are going to hit free agency. Uh, Luke Keekley retired. You know, Gerald McCoy, he's a free agent. Uh, so it would make a lot of sense for Carolina to go the defensive route here and getting someone like Derek Brown, who can pretty much be your anchor on your defense, you know, for years to come. Uh, the Panthers could do a lot worse here because that's one that, that does make a lot of sense uh, based on their need to revamp their defense, uh, not knowing what it's going to look like on offense because it seems like Cam Newton, if you if you listen to reports and rumors, uh, that they may try to trade him depending on, you know, what his health is like once they, they get to March. Um, so th- there are a lot of unknowns with the Panthers, but, uh, again, defense would be a top priority knowing that they could lose a good bulk of their defense, uh, which they have actually did pretty well in terms of getting sacks last year. Uh, so if they're able, if they lose some of those guys up front, uh, replacing it with Derrick Brown uh, would be a very good idea. And number 12, uh, Jerry Judy from Alabama to the Raiders, which <laughs> the Las Vegas Raiders, and someone put it out on Twitter. Uh, we put this out on, on the Locked On SEC account, and uh, I put the the abbreviation as LVR because, you know, I don't know. Is it going to be LVR for Las Vegas Raiders or is it just going to be LAS uh, for Las Vegas? I'm not sure, but I, I thought it did look weird as well. And somebody said that, you know, uh, it looked weird to see LVR there because uh, it's so unusual. You're used to seeing Oak for Oakland. Uh, but, uh, yes, the Raiders. And, and this is another one that I think, you know, you connect the dots, and it certainly makes sense because, you know, Kuyper noted that, and he's talked about this, that this could be a historically deep wide receiver class in this draft. And uh, I think Judy, and I don't have it pulled up right in front of me, but Judy was second on the board, I'm pretty sure, behind CeeDee Lamb uh, from Oklahoma, who I think's at number 11. Um, but with the Raiders, you know, John Gruden, he needs playmakers. He needs a more reliable wide receivers. Um, you know, Tyrell Williams was kind of their go-to guy last year, but but he was out injured uh, some as well. And so it doesn't feel like they have just a true number one type wide receiver uh, since they traded Amari Cooper to the Cowboys. And uh, with Darren Waller kind of emerging at tight end, you've got Josh Jacobs there, uh, another Alabama guy who is clearly going to be the focus of their offense moving forward. And then, you know, what does their quarterback situation look like? Are they going to trade Derek Carr? Uh, Could they get someone else there at quarterback? Anyway, any way you look at it, no matter who's playing quarterback, they need a playmaker in terms of the passing game and uh, having someone other than Darren Waller. Uh, And Jerry Judy just, it does. It seemed like a natural fit, someone that John Gruden uh, could easily fall in love with in terms of uh, how he'd be able to use him in the offense. So it makes a lot of sense uh, for Judy to number 12 if that's what happens. Number 13, uh, Javon Kenlaw from uh, South Carolina, the defensive tackle to the Colts. And Kuyper notes this too, and this was something if you watch the Colts play a lot uh, last year, injuries. They just had so many injuries, and that's what held them back probably from being a team that you know had a chance to get to the playoffs and maybe you know be a Titans type of team that could have made a run, uh, which you add to that. You know, Andrew Luck retiring right before the start of the season. But uh, if you add you know Kenlaw into the mix here, you're potentially adding someone uh, you know to a defense that already has a good offensive nucleus to work with, and this is where you know Philip. Rivers, the big connection seems to be that Philip Rivers could, to the Colts makes a lot more sense than any other move for him. Uh, we don't know if that's going to happen, but if it does, 
you know, they have a good nucleus on offense. They've got some some playmakers uh, in the passing game. You know, they've got Marlon Mack at running back. Um, and so if you add someone like this, you know, you just add more to your defense, which, uh, you know, that that's one where, you know, they were kind of up and down on defense a bit. But uh, you add someone like Ken Law to the mix, I think it would make sense for the Colts because, remember, they're playing now in the AFC South where we're seeing a lot of guys that are hard to stop on the the opposition's offense. I mean, you got Deshaun Watson with the Texans, uh, Derrick Henry, if he comes back to the Titans, uh, and then, you know, you look at the Jags, you still have Leonard Fournette there, so, and DJ Chark, of course, making uh, big contributions and and has certainly emerged. Uh, Add someone to the defense here to be able to to prevent, you know, guys like that from from having huge types of games. Uh, So uh, have someone that that can do what Ken Law can do. So that would make sense, uh, I think, for the Colts here in this spot. And then at number 14, Calevon Chason from LSU. Um, he is projected to go to the Bucks. Sort of the same situation, I think, as the Panthers in that, you know, they could lose a lot of key players from their defense and free agency. And so that's why I think Kuiper connects the dots here on that uh, because, you know, you have to be able to replace those guys. You're going to lose in free agency. And that's why at this point, all of this is pure speculation because we don't know where guys are going to go in free agency. And that's going to affect literally every single sort of scenario for all these teams. Uh, because if they don't, you know, we don't know what the roster is going to look like uh, once they get to this point in terms of the draft. Uh, but speaking of, of Chase on, I mean, someone that would be able to reconnect you know, with Devin White, uh, who had a nice season there in Tampa, and uh, joining a defense that was really improved last year. Todd Bowles came in, you know, they run a 3-4, and, and I thought that defense was very improved last season. Still not where they want it to be. Uh, but uh, they made strides because they were really bad the year before. And so uh, if you add someone like him to the mix, uh, certainly that would be a nice addition. And to be able to, to pair him you know, with someone like Devin White, uh, that would give uh, the Bucks a nice young nucleus to work with there. But uh, like I said, there's a lot more SEC players in the first round, and uh, we probably have to take an entire episode uh, to go through all of them, which I know some of you guys would enjoy that. But we will get into more football here as we continue to move forward on the podcast. Uh, but uh, again, the, you can find the link to the article uh, in the show notes, uh, Mel Kuyper's latest uh, NFL mock draft with lots of SEC players. But that'll wrap up uh, this episode of Locked on SEC Podcast. As always, uh, be sure to subscribe. Any podcast app you use, just search for Locked on SEC. And uh, if you enjoy the show, uh, be sure to give a nice five-star rating or review. Uh, That just helps the show reach more listeners, and I greatly appreciate it because you guys have been awesome so far. Uh, An awesome audience, and uh, the feedback's been great. And so uh, really exciting start uh, here to the new Locked on SEC podcast. So be sure to leave a rating, review, uh, share it with a friend. Uh, anything you can do. Uh, It certainly helps uh, the show reach more people and a lot more exciting stuff on the way. So uh, be sure to subscribe. Follow me on Twitter at DBlakeLevel. And uh, I'll talk to you guys next time here on the Locked On SEC Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.